Every morning for the past few months, we've begun our school day with Bible study. Hashtag win the day. Not many benefits to homeschooling, says the homeschool kid, but this is one of them. The unhurried pace of a morning Bible study. So we've currently been reading through the Action Bible, having somewhat worn out our Jesus Storybook Bible. The Action Bible is a little more in-depth look at the story of God, comic book style. Perhaps that would appeal to some of you. Story after story of people fighting, killing, lying, deceiving. And again and again, God loving them anyway and pouring out his grace upon them. So my daughter Ella says, why do they always stop trusting God? Aha, sharp kid. She's on to something. Just need to change one word in the question. They to we. Why do we always stop trusting God? There's not a we and them. There's an us. Nothing has really changed from the beginning of creation. We always think of ourselves first, protect ourselves first, trust ourselves first. And we therefore reveal that we don't fully trust God. And that's idolatry. Whoa, hang on a minute. That took a sharp turn. Yeah, brace yourself. That's where we're going this morning. Down deep into our idolatrous hearts. In step with the prophet Zephaniah. Harsh words that hopefully grab our attention, but harsh words that are countered by incredible hope. Those who hold to the belief that we have not turned from God, what would you believe our world would look like if we had? I will argue, along with God's word, that we and every one of us have turned from him consistently and repeatedly forever, and that God has been warning us ever since, with incredible grace and patience, far beyond what we deserve, but according to his steadfast love. More on God's warning and his judgment in the next two weeks. Oh boy. God will bring justice because he is just. He will make right what is wrong because he is righteous. He will pour out his wrath against evil and wickedness. Zephaniah 3.8 Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, and to pour out upon them my indignation, all of my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. God's decision to pour out his indignation, his burning anger, is leveled at more than merely the violent and the insolent. For example, the bigots and the slave traders, the oppressors and abusers, any that would fall into the category of truly evil and wicked. Who gets to decide? In other words, where's the line, so to speak? Who's in the evil, wicked group and who's safe? Is the line drawn at not that bad or just good enough? Certainly, we are not the judge of where that cutoff mark would be. So God must be. So what does he say through his word? Where is that line? God's judgment is much more pervasive than against a select few. And there's a clue toward the end of verse 8, where God reveals the fire of his jealousy. Our God is a jealous God. Not in the way we sometimes might use the word jealous or might see it displayed in our kids, wanting something that another has. That's more rightly named envy. Jealousy is the desire to keep and maintain and protect what is rightly ours or has been entrusted to us. So it's not always wrong. 
For example, I am jealous of my wife's affection as she should be of mine. We vowed on our wedding day to give our affection solely to each other for as long as we both shall live. God is a jealous God for our affection, our worship, our trust. Truly, he's jealous of his whole creation. For by him and through him and for him are all things. In him we live and move and have our being. He's right to be jealous of what he has made. It made the top 10 list, by the way. In fact, it tops the charts. Exodus 20, verse 3 and 4, the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth below, that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God's judgment is leveled at all peoples who have turned from him to worship idols, these idolaters. His judgment is they will receive exactly what they deserve, Really, what they've lived their whole lives proving they want, and their idols must save them. That's a terrifying thought, as if a carved image made of wood or stone made by human hands has any power over life and death. Most of us would be quick to say, I don't worship idols. I don't fall into the category of what Zephaniah is prophesying against. These idolaters, Zephaniah 1.4, where God says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on their roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. God, through Zephaniah, is condemning fickle hearts with fickle faith. We might call that syncretism the combining of religious ideas or devotions or practices, something that Israel had succumbed to basically their whole existence, adopting idolatrous practices from other peoples, other nations, often right alongside their own faith and their own religious practices, worshiping Yahweh, the one true God. They would make vows to the Lord and then turn and swear by Milcom also, also known as Moloch, a Canaanite god worshiped by the Ammonites, often associated with child sacrifice. From the Israelites at time in captivity in Egypt, they were oppressed by a people who worship all kinds of gods, a pantheon. The nations that bordered them in the wilderness and even after coming into the promised land were all pantheistic, a God for everything, a God in everything, gods that needed to be appeased. In the time of the judges, after Moses and after Joshua had passed, Israel established high places of worship to these foreign gods, to Baal, to Ashtaroth, among their favorites. Judges 10, 6 and following. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And it would be a slow burn for centuries. That description is apt for Israel. For many centuries, judges and kings and priests would rise up to call the nation to repentance, to reform. They would tear down the high places. They would return the nation to sole devotion of worship to Yahweh alone. Only when those leaders would pass would the nation drift once again back into syncretism. 
and often within the same generation. God eventually has enough. After warning and warning and warning through his prophets, after waiting and waiting and waiting for centuries, he allows or even sends and wills that the nations of Assyria and Babylon would come and utterly destroy Israel and take them into captivity. Now, it would be fairly easy for us, because blindness and arrogance do not have to be learned or honed, to sit in judgment against Israel. They got what they deserved. In fact, they got better than what they deserved. God was merciful and patient and steadfast beyond belief. God had proven himself faithful again and again and again. He had rescued, delivered, provided for, proved his presence with them and power for them endless times. It was their whole history. We might want to say, how is it possible that they turned from him to worship idols? We would never do the same. We would join my daughter Ella in saying, why do they always distrust and disobey God? Not only have we done the same, we've made up new forms of idolatry that Israel never even dreamed of. Maybe we don't have shrines or high places. Maybe we don't have trinkets or talismans that we bow to or pray to or simply touch or rub for luck or fortune. Maybe. And maybe we're not on our rooftops bowing down to the sun, the stars, the moon. But God's judgment and his jealousy is a heart matter, internal, not external. Here's Ephaniah 1.4 and then 6. I will stretch out my hand against those who have turned back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Okay, so that's starting to hit a little closer to home. You mean the Lord considers idolatry anyone who rebels or dismisses or distrusts him and instead places their hope and trust in another, another person, another thing? Those who have not and do not worship him as sovereign, those who do not seek him, those who have said of him or even lived like, he'll do nothing Here's Ephaniah 1.12. At that time, I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. In their hearts, not just with their words, their actions could say something totally other, but who are complacent in heart, dismissing God's presence and power. Listen to chapter 3, verse 2. Speaking of Jerusalem and the inhabitants of that city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. According to the testimony of all of Scripture, this is idolatry. And this is the definition of sin itself. They are synonyms in the Bible. Idolatry, sin, they're not only the things that we might do, they're the arrogant dismissing and distrusting of God at a heart level. All that we might do or say flows from that heart. To say it succinctly, sin and idolatry is primarily a heart problem, not a hand problem. The most concise description that I know of in Scripture comes from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2, 13. And you've heard me preach on this passage often. The Lord says, For my people have committed two evils, two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. If we simply replace idolatry for evil, my people have committed two forms of idolatry. They've forsaken me, the fountain, the source of living water, 
And two, they have dug out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns. If this is idolatry, then we are all guilty. We have all turned away, drifted, ignored, dismissed, rejected, rebelled, pick your verb, from the source of life to wander out into the desert? If life with God is like living in a garden, in a perfect oasis, then we come to think, you know, a desert vacation sounds pretty nice. And so we go. And when we become parched and thirsty and desperate and dying, we don't say, let us return to the garden, to the source of living water. Wasn't it good? We say instead, let's stay here. But let's dig down cisterns so that when it rains, and it must rain sometime, then we can survive by the work of our own hands. But those cisterns won't hold water. They are porous. So we remain ever thirsty, never satisfied. And yet somehow we convince ourselves that we in fact prefer living here, drinking silty water. Maybe we want to be able to say to ourselves and to others, see, look what we have done, the work of our hands. We have always done this. It's why Zephaniah is so relevant for us today. Idolatry is the root of all sin. It has been passed down and repeated from the very beginning, beginning with our first parents who did live in the perfect garden oasis that God had made and, he tra- and they traded it all for what they thought would be better. They distrusted God's word and followed their own truth, their own perspective, their feelings. To summarize, at that tree, that fateful day, this fruit looks good, does it? Perhaps God is withholding from us. Why would he hold from us something good? Perhaps he isn't all good. Perhaps we need something more than his presence and his promise to be satisfied in life. Let us take for ourselves. Another way to define idolatry is the preferring of created things over the creator, the gifts over the giver, namely the work of our own hands, the product of our own thoughts and ideas that we might boast. Idolatry is inspired by a lie, as it was by Satan himself and continues to be today, but it's perpetuated by our own assumption that there is something more that we need in order to be truly fulfilled and satisfied to find happiness. Even though God has revealed again and again that he alone is the source of life, even abundant life. As Jesus said in John 10.10, there is a thief and he will come to steal and kill and destroy, to speak lies, if I might add. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Will we confess ourselves idolaters? Are we ready? I'll say again, those who worship idols are not only under the wrath of God, but under his judgment. And his judgment will be this. You will receive exactly what you deserve. What you've lived your entire lives proving you want. That your idols must save you in your time of greatest need and desperation. And that is a terrifying thought. Because essentially that means we must save ourselves Whatever we've been able to earn or achieve or produce, that must save us. That must be all in all. It must be the source of life. Our work, our career, our family, our service, our philanthropy, our achievements, our savings. None of these can save or even satisfy. And don't we know it? So, oh Lord, we cast down our idols. Idolatry is so dangerous because it is often so subtle. We can make anything, even good things, into idols. 
Pastor Tim Keller says, idolatry is usually not the worship of evil things, but making good things into ultimate things. Anything we trust in, love, pursue, and put our hope in before God, we make into idols. Scholar D.A. Carson says it this way, The heart of all evil is idolatry itself. It is the de-godding of God. It is the creature swinging his puny fist in the face of his maker and saying, in effect, I'll be my own God. Small wonder that the sin most frequently said to arouse God's wrath in Scripture is not murder, as an example, or pillage, or any other horizontal barbarism. It's idolatry, that which dethrones God. That is also why in every sin it is God who is the most offended party. So if the heart of all evil is idolatry, then no wonder it's number one on that list we read. You shall have no other gods before me. Our God is a jealous God. The rest of that list and all the other commands in Scripture essentially are an extrapolation or explanation of that command. So it is worse than we previously thought. It runs deeper. It's more pervasive. It touches us all through and through. And it means we today are just as much in the crosshairs of this warning and judgment as were the Israelites. Zephaniah 2.11, the Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to each shall bow down in its own place all the lands of the nations. There is a coming day when he will prove himself sovereign, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess. But first he will famish all the gods of the earth, all the things that we might otherwise trust and worship. So what an opportunity we are presented with in this time of global warning. Warning, not warming. Are we not at the end of ourselves? All of our gods have been shaken. Security, our health, freedom, future, the experiences we love, gatherings, sports, our investments, our savings, our retirement, for some, our career, they're all being shaken, but they are not yet famished, as God's word says they will be, although for some it may feel that way. So perhaps then this is still God's mercy being extended. To be sure, if he were to utterly famish the idols that we tenaciously cling to, that too is his mercy. Imagine you're clinging to a sinking ship you cannot swim. You're caught in the storm. And a coast, the Coast Guard swoops in in the last moment and rips you away from that ship to your safety. Painful, yet saved. And what does Jesus say? Luke 9, 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself, his soul? Will we release our grip on our idols that have been shaken? Before they and we along with them are utterly famished. Will we bow in worship of the one true God who is living, active, and stands ready to save? The judgment is worse than we previously thought. These are harsh words, no denying that. But that is what makes God's grace and mercy even greater than we could possibly imagine. It's better than we could have hoped. Zephaniah will point us to our God who stands ready to save Zephaniah 3.17, towards the end, his concluding statements. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. 
He will exult over you with loud singing. Through the harsh words and the warnings, there is incredible hope. As we pointed out last week, God speaks in the prophetic perfect tense. Even though he speaks of a time in the future, from our perspective, from his perspective, it is done. His judgment and his wrath are poured out. He doesn't withhold them, but he pours them out on Jesus. Jesus takes our penalty, what we deserve, and puts it to death on the cross. I'll give this incredible truth the attention it deserves in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. But when Jesus hung on that cross, he declared, it is finished, speaking as the greatest prophet of all. And yet the words of Zephaniah are still so relevant because we do remain an idolatrous people, being warned by God of the consequences of continuing to turn away from him and to worship other people, other things, pleasures, our own ideas, and assumptions. And we do remain a people awaiting the coming of our Messiah, King Jesus, who will bring justice through perfect judgment, who will restore all broken things. Our only hope of not being included in the ones to be swept away from the face of the earth as Zephaniah began his prophecy, our only hope is to be hidden in Christ. Zephaniah 2, 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. In that we know we are seeking Jesus himself. And Zephaniah says, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Zephaniah's name means God has hidden. Maybe he's hiding his ultimate purposes, but in a poetic play on words, he reveals the heartbeat of his message and the refrain of all prophecy God's judgment will come against all idolatry, all sin, all evil. It is more pervasive than we ever thought. But there is incredible hope, more amazing than we ever dared believe. By God's grace alone, may we be hidden from his wrath, in Christ, protected, spared, passed over, delivered. May we seek him now, humble our hearts before him, Cast down our idols. Renounce all that we have trusted in and believed will bring us true life in place of him or in addition to him. Because we too can be syncretists, adding things right alongside our worship and our prayers and our apparent trust of him. But make no mistake, Jesus plus anything is still idolatry. May we return to the source of living water. Oh, how he longs to gather us up to heal, to comfort, to rescue, to restore. Let me conclude with Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Let's seek him together now. Seek his forgiveness and grace through confession, through repentance, through turning to him. May we sing his praises and make them our prayers. Love you, church. Miss you. See you soon.